0: Um, I enjoy reading church history and ancient church documents. And y'all may have heard me mention a a document called the the Didache here before. Um, It goes by several different titles. It it goes by the teaching of the twelve apostles to the Gentiles, which it probably wasn't written by the apostles. It's not technically scripture, Uh, but it does provide a good look into the mind of the early church because it was written toward the end of the first century, actually pretty close to the time Revelation was written. And it's notable because one of the injunctions that early Christians were counseled not to take part in was as early as the 90s A.D. So not even 100 A.D. yet. The earliest Christians had documents that said do not engage in abortion. It is a 2,000 year old issue. Older than that. So I get nervous flipping the news on and watching the news, that one of the things that we could fall for is folks saying, well, that's a political issue. Don't talk about politics in churches. No, the lives of unborn children is not a political issue. That's a spiritual issue. That's a biblical issue. That's a Christian issue. And we as Christians, um, we should care about that. We should care about the fact that children die. You know, I was, you know, if I had my daughter in here for that. I know y'all know that because y'all heard her. (laughs) That was by design. There was a point for that. That when you have an abortion you're not destroying a clump of cells. You're destroying that. So I'm going to get myself back together, and we're going to preach the Bible now. So y'all, please stop at the table in the back and talk to Jennifer if you're interested in helping, and I hope you are. So if you've turned in your your Bible to the second chapter of Revelation, we have been working our way through this book And we are just going to dive into the third letter um, from Jesus to one of these churches in Asia Minor that we have been through, uh, the church at Ephesus that Jesus rebuked for leaving their first love, even though they had works, even though they had knowledge, even though they had all these other things. Basically, they were a perfect Baptist church other than the fact that they didn't love Jesus or each other. Um, So Jesus rebuked them for that. Uh, We covered the persecuted church in Smyrna last week. That Smyrna is one of actually two churches that Jesus didn't have anything bad to say about. um, Which is kind of the church that we want to be. We want to be a church that Jesus has nothing bad to say about. And then today we're dealing with the church at Pergamos. Some of your Bibles may say Pergamum. But but we're going to deal with Jesus and his letter to the church at Pergamos this morning. So if you will stand... Out of the respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 uh, this morning. Starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamus write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. Who was killed among you where Satan dwells? But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Father, I pray that as we study this word this morning, that we would, just, we would not get caught up in being confused by symbolism, but Lord, that we would see the bold-faced truth that you put right in front of us, that tolerance and compromise are not the same thing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So, to kind of recap how we got where we are, the book of Revelation is confusing. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's not possible for us to understand what it says. Uh, the Revelation is at its core, it's an epistle, it's a letter, it's written by the Apostle John um, out on the island of Patmos. He's had an encounter with the risen Christ, and Christ has said, I have... Letters that I want you to send to seven churches. And again, if you can imagine a little map in your head, you've got the island of Patmos off the coast over here, and then you've got seven churches almost in a little triangle, right about 40 miles landward from Patmos, that are all in this one little 80 to 100 mile area. So they all probably knew each other, but they each have their own issues. And this letter is written to a church in Pergamos. So we're going to talk a little bit about where this city is, but first I want to talk about Jesus' introduction. Jesus introduces himself to every, to every church differently, and his introduction to each church has to do with what he is about to tell them. So I don't know about y'all, but when Jesus introduces himself as carrying a sword, I get a little nervous. Um, I, wore the, I wore my sword tie clip today uh, for a reason. Um, That Jesus introduces himself to the church at Pergamos as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now just to kind of get there, you can see in verse 12, it says this is to the angel of the church in Pergamos. That's probably referring to the pastor. Um, So the pastor would have gotten this letter. And the first thing he would have seen is that Jesus says, hey, uh, your God who is carrying a giant sword is talking to you right now. So... Here's your attention getter. Uh, now this is a callback when he says he's got a sharp two-edged sword. If you look back at chapter 1 and look at verse 16, where does it say the, the two-edged sword is? It says it's coming out of what? It says it's coming out of his mouth. Now y'all, please, I told you this when we, when we were in chapter 1. When you're envisioning Jesus in Revelation, please don't envision him with a literal steel sword coming out of his mouth. That's not what he's saying. Uh, That the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I promise you, Jesus doesn't need a steel blade coming out of his mouth to be dangerous. His word is plenty powerful enough. That is the two-edged sword he's talking about. That when he says, he who has the sharp two-edged sword, it's him saying... My words matter. My words are authoritative. My words are powerful. And you, church at Pergamos, have not been listening to them. This church gets a very stern rebuke. But Jesus has a few things to say about the church at Pergamos, which is our first point, which it's good for us as a church to persist in the middle of a secular world. That is exactly what the church at Pergamos, or Pergamum, depending on your translation, was doing. Uh, here's a little bit about what Jesus has to say about Pergamos. He says, I know your works. If you're reading a New American Standard or an ESV, you might not see works. Jesus would lead straight in by saying, I know your works and where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. What is he talking about? What does he mean Satan's throne is in Pergamos? Uh, This is actually a quote from the, uh, I believe this is, yes, this is uh, the New International Commentary on the uh, New Testament. Of greatest import for the Christians in Pergamum was the fact that it was the official center in Asia, that's the Roman province, of the imperial cult. It was the first city in Asia to receive permission to build a temple dedicated to the worship of a living ruler. In 29 BC, Caesar Augustus granted permission for a temple to be erected in Pergamum to the divine Augustus and the, and the goddess Roma. Of all seven cities that Jesus wrote a letter to, Pergamum was the one in which the church was most liable to clash With the imperial cult. So Rome was not just an empire. That they thought so much of their empire. That they invented a god. And named her Roma. Like the tomato. Except they took her very seriously. They built temples for her. She was to be worshipped. You were worshipping the state. Effectively, And alongside the goddess Roma, you worshipped the divine Augustus. You worshipped the emperor. And out of everywhere they had temples, to Roma and to the emperor, Pergamos was kind of the capital. This was the first city that had a temple to the emperor and to Roma. So this is the middle of the entire imperial cult. So there was a very devoted religious following of the Roman pantheon in Pergamos. There was actually a giant temple as well in the city of Pergamos to the god Zeus or his Roman name Jupiter. So if you know anything, if you ever read the Odyssey or the Iliad or maybe the A and Ed in school when you were forced to, um, you know that Zeus or Jupiter inside their pantheon was the king. He was the head honcho. He was the boss. So there's actually, a, because I'm weird, I'm reading the Iliad right now, and Zeus tells the other Greek gods that when they have a difference of opinion with them, he says, well, frankly, I don't care if you have a difference of opinion with me because I'm so much stronger than you that if you disagree with me and you voice it, I'll just grab you and throw you into hell and you can't do anything about it. And the other gods said, okay, well, I mean, he's right. You know, Zeus is the head honcho. So they had a giant temple to Zeus there, the false god Zeus. So, inside this city, you've got a temple to the emperor, you've got a temple to the empire, and you've got a temple to the chief god of the Roman pantheon. In short, they don't like Christians. They don't like them at all. They viewed them as atheists. We talked about that last week, because they didn't worship the recognized Roman gods. (coughs) And Jesus goes so far as to say, why? This is a terrifying prospect. Why is it that Pergamum has such a strong concentration of of this false god worship? Why is it that Pergamum has the worship of the empire, the worship of the emperor, the worship of Zeus, this strict dedication to the Roman gods? Why is it that it's in Pergamum? Jesus says because that's where Satan has set up his throne right now, church. How terrifying a prospect is that? Could you imagine Jesus telling you that right down the street from your church is where Satan has decided to set up his headquarters? That's exactly what Jesus told the church. He says, guys, I understand where you dwell. I understand how hard it is. I understand that you get great resistance just for existing where you are. Jesus acknowledges that. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then he commends them. He says, and you hold fast to my name. In Greek, that's a present tense, which means you're not, you didn't just hold fast temporarily. You hold fast and you continue to hold fast. It's a persistent thing that this church is full of survivors That you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Do you know who Antipas was? Neither do I. I have no idea who Antipas was. But they very obviously did. And so did Jesus. And his martyrdom would have been something that they were familiar with. So Jesus says, even when someone was martyred in front of you, you did not back down. You maintained the faith. You stayed faithful to me. Even when Antipas... And he goes back again and says, where Satan dwells. That Jesus recognized then and he recognizes now the difficulties that come from living in a culture contrary to the gospel. And y'all, I have said it before. I will say it again. And maybe it's controversial. But it's purely because it's a sentimental thing that we hold. Y'all, in 2019, America is not a Christian nation. We want it to be. But y'all, it's not. When the highest court in the land says we have no problem legalizing the murder of infants, is that Christian? I would love for it to be. And the majority of the founders of this nation were. But culturally, religiously, The world we live in, the country we live in, is not dominated by practicing Christians. If we're honest, is it? No, it's not. And every day that goes by, it gets harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. Jesus understands that. That 20 years ago, Christian views on a variety of topics were way more mainstream than they're considered to be now. Is that true or false? It's, it's true. 40 or 50 years ago, which in the grand scheme of history is not that long. Christian views on humanity, human sexuality... We're touching the borders of abortion there with 50 years ago. Christian views were a lot more mainstream. But in 2019, they're not. You can get ridiculed just for expressing a biblical view. That it is now considered radical, rude, and bigoted to express a biblical view for example, of marriage. Now, I hate to pick on a pet topic because I know that comes up a lot, but that's, that's easy pickings for explaining. That Jesus understands what it's like for a church to exist in a culture that is hostile, not just to its beliefs, but its existence. For instance, in this time, Christians believed it was immoral to worship any other god than the Trinitarian god of the Bible. The Roman religionists believed it was immoral not to worship the emperor and the pantheon. Those truths were, those beliefs were mutually exclusive. You couldn't have both of them at the same time. And y'all, there are always going to be positions as Christians that we hold because Jesus said, what, what is it he says in verse 12? These things say he who has the what? The sharp two-edged sword, right? The sword is what? His word. What he has said. When Jesus speaks, as a church, we listen. That Jesus determines for us right and wrong. Say, well, Josh, what about being open-minded? I'm all for being open-minded as long as you don't open your mind so far that everything that's in there falls out. That can't happen. There are some things I don't have to be open-minded about because Jesus has closed the book on. That doesn't mean that I'm not loving. That doesn't mean that I'm not compassionate. That doesn't mean that I'm not concerned. That doesn't mean that I'm rude. But that does mean that I don't have a say in what is right and what is wrong. Jesus does. Jesus does. If you go back to the Didache that I mentioned earlier that talked about abortion, the very first line of this ancient Christian document reads, there are two ways, one of life and one of death, but a great difference between the two ways. Say, well, hang on, Joshua, not two ways. People think there are lots of ways. There's the Christian way and there's the Muslim way and there's the Jewish way and there's the Hindu way and there's the atheist way. No, there's two. There is the God of the Bible and then there is everything else. Those are two ways. You can either follow Christ or no matter what else you follow, it's not Christ. It doesn't matter what not Christ you follow, the end of that road is the same. So as Christians, if you turn the dial just a little bit and say, well, this isn't exactly what Jesus said, well, then it's not what Jesus said. So, Christianity is defined by its otherness. Um, in 1 Peter chapter, and this is on your handout, in First Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and 16, Peter says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. The best definition of the word holy is other. Set apart. Unlike everything else, the Bible says God is holy, holy, holy. It's the only adjective that's ever used like that with God. That three times that way, emphasizing. So God is other. There is nothing else like Him. There is no one or no thing He can be compared to. He is unique. He is God, which means if we belong to Him, we also ought to be apart. It is not the church's concern to look as much like the world we live in as we can in order to reach that world. It's okay if we look different. It's okay if we sound different. It's okay if we speak differently. In fact, Jesus did say, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be tossed out and trampled under people's feet. That salt is supposed to season something. You're supposed to notice the pop when you put... Have y'all ever eaten? I know y'all do. Y'all, we live in the South. Y'all are, I, I, I was out eating with some church folks the other day. That we took, a, we took a scoop of veggies up and we ate them. We was at a soul food restaurant. Y'all, y'all don't know nothing about that, do you? Man, I was at Ivory's in Thompson. I did hurt myself. You don't have to put salt on a single thing in that restaurant. You can get your entire sodium count for the day in a little tiny bowl of of, of greens. I ain't even talking about the fried food yet. Man, I got a whole plate full of cabbage and greens and black-eyed peas. Then everybody had to roll me out. And I loved it. But you know, you put it in your mouth, you can taste the salt, can't you? You know it's there. You know what else when you bite into something that doesn't have any, you can can taste its absence too, can you? Salt's supposed to be noticeable. It's supposed to, to pop. So when Jesus calls us salt, He expects us to be noticeable by our unique quality. The same way that salt is when it's in food. But if salt has lost its flavor, you know what it is? Dirt. It's shiny, grainy dirt. That doesn't do anything but crunch when you bite into it. It's not good for anything. So we're to be holy the way Jesus is holy. Even in a secular culture. <clears throat> and then in Leviticus 20, I wanted to get a little bit of Old Testament in there. So that you could, you could kind of see the, the pattern Leviticus twenty twenty three. 23, God's talking to the ancient Israelites and he told them, you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation, which I'm casting out before you, for they commit all these things and therefore I abhor them. So think about this for just a second. Israel is going into this land occupied by another nation. And that nation has certain things that are perfectly acceptable within the bounds of that nation. Not only are they legal, that nation considers them moral and acceptable if you engage in them. Not a single person in Canaan would have batted an eye if Israel walked in and started sacrificing to their gods... Getting involved with their temple maidens, and I will leave that alone. It happened, by the way. We're going to talk about that in just a second. No one would have said anything. They would have considered it a good thing. But God said, even though the nation you live in thinks this is okay, I don't. You don't walk according to their word. You walk according to mine. So since we have a visitor with us this morning is there anything that is legal in the United States that its legality has not made it moral? Yes. There are plenty of things that are legal in this country that does not make them moral. That nobody gets to decide what is right and wrong except God. And whenever the nation that you dwell in right now because if you're a Christian this land, this world is not your home you're just passing through. If you are a Christian living in this world and the nation that you, the people of the land that you currently sojourn in, have laws and morals and values that are different than what God says, you don't walk according to the statutes of that nation. You walk according to the word of Jesus. So Jesus understands how difficult it is to live in a secular society that is contrary to the gospel. He praised Pergamum for doing that. He noticed it. And he notices it when you do it. Maybe you've got to deal with it at work. Maybe you've got to deal with it at school. Maybe you've got to deal with it, I don't know, maybe you've got to deal with it in your house. Maybe you have to deal with it with your family. Jesus recognizes the difficulties. And it's praiseworthy to him. <coughs> But he didn't stop there. It's good for a church to persist in the midst of a secular world. But it is bad for a church to appropriate that secular world. If Jesus had just stopped, you know, at verse 13, I'm sure Pergamos would have been happy. But he didn't. Verse 14, Jesus said, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Okay, how many of you remember or have ever heard the story of Balaam and Balak? If you're not, we're going to have a Bible history lesson. It's going to be fun. This is great. The fun part of Balaam's story is the, the part with the talking donkey, but we're not going to talk about that yet. Uh, This is, it's like Shrek, except in the Bible for a second. Um, Balaam, in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, was actually a real prophet. He was not a false prophet. He was a real prophet. That he, God spoke to him. And Balaam was hired, King Balak of the Moabites, you can can go back and you can see this uh, in, in Numbers 25. Balak is a king of the Moabites who goes to Balaam and says, Hey, Balaam. And he goes, Yes, Balak. Uh, I'm concerned because these people, these Hebrews, these Israelites are coming through our land. And they've laid waste to everybody behind them. And I don't want them to do that to us. So you're a prophet. I want to pay you so that you'll go curse them. And Balaam goes to God. And says, what do I do? And God says, you ain't going to curse them because I've blessed them. So Balaam goes out and he tells Balak, he says, Balak, I can't curse these people. Because God had not cursed these people. God's blessed these people. So I can't say anything other than what God says. And Balak goes, oh, but please, Balaam. Balaam, I, I'll pay you even more. I'll send fancier people to come ask you to do this. With fancier things. And God says, all right, go with them if you want to. But you better not say anything other than what I tell you. So Balak goes out. And every time he opens his mouth, blessing comes out instead of curse. And Balak gets mad. And he goes, Balaam, what are you doing? Why did you even come out here? I told you to curse them. And Balaam said, I told you at the beginning. If God has blessed them... I can't curse them because I can't override God. And then all of a sudden, at the end of chapter 24, Balaam and Balak just part ways. There's no bad words, no falling out, no nothing. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, when I'm reading this, I'm like, wait a minute. Balak, five minutes ago, was furious at this guy. Why did he just leave and act like nothing was wrong? Well, in chapter 25, immediately following this, the Israelite men start getting mixed up with Moabite women. And these Moabite women bring with them Moabite idols. And next thing you know, all of these Israelite men who got mixed up with the Moabite women start worshipping the gods of the Moabites. And God's not happy with that. So what God does is God sends a plague that kills 24,000 Israelites. And it's not until they realize, oh, maybe we shouldn't be worshiping other gods that the plague stops. Now you might think, well, this is kind of silly that they did this. Well, this is a quote from God who commands Israel to attack Moab in response to this. Uh, God commands Israel to attack Moab in response to their schemes by which they seduced you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of a leader of Midian, their sister, who was killed in the day of the plague because of Peor. In other words, the seduction of the Israelites by the Moabite women, which resulted in a plague from God, was a planned attack by Moab. Where did they get this idea? Chapter 31, you find out it was Balaam. That Balaam told Balak, hey, I can't curse them because God has blessed them. But God has blessed them because they're his separate people who they're not part of you. God wants to give them this land. So here's what you do. If you want them to be cursed, you have got to get them to forfeit God's blessing and his protection by not separating themselves anymore. You've got to get them to worship your God so that he will stop protecting them. So here's what you do, Balak. You get a bunch of your temple maidens and you send them over there to Israel and you have them seduce them and then have them start worshiping Baal and I bet you God will punish them. Sad thing was, Balaam was right. Israel fell for it. They decided they would rather get involved with the people of the land and the gods of the land and the culture of the land than have the blessing of their God who had protected them this entire time. So Balaam didn't outsmart God. Israel's dealt with this before, haven't they? Every time they turn their back on God and decide to worship somebody else, they get disciplined, don't they? That's nothing new. They knew better. Balaam just didn't have any faith that they would actually continue following God. And Balaam was right. So when Jesus looks at the church at Pergamum and says, You've got those among you who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Eating food, sacrifice to idols, and committing sexual immorality. What Jesus is saying is, Church, even though you persist... You've got those in your number who have started marrying together the Christian religion and the Roman religion. You've got those in your number who have decided, well, if we can't beat them, join them. They've got a few things that aren't all that bad. So we don't need to, that's not a big deal. Let's just, they can be church members if they still do this, they can still love Jesus. And Jesus points out, he says, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. These are effectively the Moabites in this analogy that Jesus says, I'm very clear in what I have taught you. I'm very clear in what I have told you. I'm very clear in what is acceptable to me and what is not acceptable to me. And you have begun to disregard my word. You have begun to disregard what I told you. You no longer care about the things that I care about. You care more about your own self-preservation and your own relevance in your city rather than faithfulness to me. Guys, Jesus doesn't care about anything so much as He cares about your faithfulness. If you are faithful, everything else will handle itself. He has loved you. He has given himself... Y'all, Jesus died for us. He died for us. The church at Pergamum knew that. The reason that they exist is because a bunch of them were probably Roman pagans. A bunch of them were probably folks who were lost, who were dead, who were dying. They spent their time in the temple of Roma, in the temple of Zeus, in the temple of Augustus. They spent their time wasting their time on these false gods until one day somebody came and told them, hey, did you know you're wasting your time with these false gods? Let me tell you about the real God who loved you enough to come down here and put on flesh and die for you so that your sin could be forgiven. That you are dead and gone and had nothing but hell to look forward to. And Jesus gave his life for you so that you could be forgiven and you could be called by a new name. You could be called by his name. You could be his people. You could be free from Zeus and the emperor and the goddess Roma and all of these other things that are vying for your attention and your love and they have nothing to offer you. Jesus can save you and they believed the gospel and they were saved. They knew that. But the same thing happened to them that happens to so many of us As you see the walls closing in on you in this world and you say, man, it's hard to live the way Jesus wants me to live. These folks can't stand me because I believe these things because I live this way. Is there any small thing that maybe I could compromise on that doesn't make that big of a difference that folks would, would be a little bit less antagonistic toward me if I was accepting of Maybe somebody can be a member of the church if they still live this lifestyle. And that wouldn't hurt anything. Maybe someone can still do this and be a member in good standing. Who am I to judge? I don't want to be judgmental. I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be bigoted. Maybe maybe we're a little old-fashioned. I mean, it's 2019. Maybe we should do things a little bit differently regarding membership and who we live it. Guys. Every time Israel got destroyed in the Old Testament is because they allowed sin into the camp. Now y'all please don't hear me wrong. Am I saying we need to have somebody at the door asking people lifestyle questions when they walk in? No. Anybody is welcome to come in this church and be, be with us And hear the gospel preaching. In fact I want everybody to come in here. And hear the gospel. But if somebody wants to be a member. And identify as a Christian. The definition of what a Christian is. Has not changed for 2000 years. And it's not changing here today. That when you come to Christ. You come away from everything that you left behind. And you don't go back. That grace means God, God Grace means God loves you the way you are right now, but He loves you too much to leave you that way. The Holy Spirit will change you. The Holy Spirit will root sin out of your life. The Holy Spirit will draw you toward God. But as He draws you toward Himself, He will draw you away from everything else that does not honor Him. He is never going to pull you toward those things that you were supposed to have left behind. He's never going to do it. And the church at Pergamos was playing that game. Romans chapter 6 verses 15 and 16. uh, Paul says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one, slaves whom you obey, whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? Y'all, I'm obsessed with grace. I'm not all about the whole living my life, working, trying to please Jesus. God's happy with me based on what Jesus has done for me on the cross. I don't have anything to offer him that he needs from me. He's pleased with me based on the blood of Jesus and that alone. There's nothing I can do to make him happy with me. He's already as happy with me as he's ever going to get. I'm under grace. I'm not under law. But because I'm under grace, does that mean I should look at sin and say, well, God's gonna forgive us anyway? No. That's not what we do. That ruins our witness. That ruins God's reputation. That Paul says we don't we we don't sin just because we have grace. And finally, James 4, verses 7 and 8. He says, Adulterers and adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That James is saying, if you're going to come to God, come to God. If you're not going to, don't. But you can't come to God and stay in the world and have it both ways. Church, is okay to be different. It's okay if we look different than the world outside. That doesn't mean we don't love those in the world outside. Good Lord, love them. <laughs> love is something we have that is different. Offer them Jesus' love. But tell them Jesus is different. Tell them Jesus is different than what they've got. So it's good for a church to persist in a secular world. It's bad for a church to appropriate that secular world. And finally, it's it's actually dangerous for a church to provoke Jesus with compromise. Look at verse 16. And we'll close quickly with this. Jesus says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Three facts to remember. First, Y'all, Jesus is talking to His church. He's talking to His church. And second, don't sell out on quote-unquote grace so much that you ignore what Jesus is saying. I'm all about grace, but I'm okay with grace the way the Bible defines it. And grace is not an excuse for me to ignore what Jesus is saying here. And what Jesus is saying is not everyone in this church at Pergamus is of the church. Do you guys understand that it's possible to be a member of a church and be lost? You can have your name on our membership roll at Stapleton Baptist and and not go to heaven. It's very possible. And Jesus was saying that to them. That guys, He said, I will come to you, your church, and fight against them with the words of my mouth. In other words... I will deal, if y'all don't deal with the folks that are in your membership, that do not follow me, that do not believe in me, that do not love me, if y'all don't deal with them, Jesus said, I will come deal with them. And you don't want me to come deal with them. Guys, sent the camp is a big deal. And without going into details, it's been a painful week to be a Southern Baptist for some of us. If you've been reading the news. Church, I guard our membership role like a hawk. I want that door as wide open as I can get it. But if you're going to join this church, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to interview you. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to ask you what you believe. I'm going to want you to tell me when you gave your life to Christ. I'm going to insist that you follow Jesus in believers' baptism. And I'm not going to announce you as a member until you do. I'm going to be very careful. With who serves and who teaches in this church. Because Jesus takes very seriously those who bear his name. And I don't want to ever find Stapleton Baptist Church in a position where this applies to us. Where Jesus says, Stapleton, because you didn't deal with false believers, I will deal with them. Is that a scary prospect? Jesus said it. But there's also a reward promised. Look at verse 17. Jesus said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. This is from the New International Commentary. In the concept of a messianic feast, it seems best to take the white stone as a tessera that served as a token for admission to the banquet. These little tablets of wood, metal, or stone were used in the ancient times for many purposes. They were distributed to the poor in Rome by emperors to ensure a regular supply of corn and given to the victor at games and gladiators who had won the admiration of the public and had been allowed to retire from further combat. So in other words, if you were poor or a gladiatorial victor, they would give you a little white stone. A little emblem from the emperor that said, I will supply this person with their food from now on. They've been provided for. So Jesus is saying, hey, you live in Satan's throne where the emperor of Rome is worshipped, where the empire is worshipped, where Zeus is worshipped, where people sacrifice bulls and goats to him because they want his protection and provision. And they hand out these little stones to give you corn. He says, church in Pergamos, do you want their corn or do you want my manna? Whose reward do you want? Who do you want to be faithful to? Do you want my recognition or do you want theirs? Do you want my acceptance or do you want theirs? I don't know about y'all, but as for me in my house, I want to be accepted by Jesus. I want His acceptance. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit drawing me ever forward in faithfulness, that doesn't mean I don't screw up. That just means that the Holy Spirit is going to constantly pull me to Him. Jesus is going to get me there. That you can have recognition for, for Jesus is being faithful too. I just, he just needs you to repent. He needs you to come to him in repentance and say, you know what? I have been worshiping false gods for far too long. And I've been compromising for far too long. Uh, Miss Joyce and, and Jim are about to lead us in a couple of verses of an invitation hymn. And I want to give you an opportunity right now to come to Jesus if you don't know him. To so be forgiven if you have never been forgiven. Uh, that Christ, the same way he loved Pergamos, The same way he died for Pergamos, the same way that he offers grace to Pergamos, he offers it to you. There's nothing left for you to do other than come to him and say, God, have mercy on me and sin. If you want to know how you can trust Jesus, you've got a few different options. You can come down the aisle and talk to me if you want to. Uh, You you can fill out the guest card on your bulletin. If walking down front makes you nervous, I'll get it and I'll follow up with you. Or you can catch me at the back door and say, Pastor, I need to talk to you about giving my life to Christ but I don't want you to leave without responding to what the Holy Spirit's calling you to do. So I'm going to pray, um, and we're going to sing a couple of verses of an invitation hymn, and if you need to come, you come. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you that you are a gracious God, but Lord, we we do acknowledge um, that there is a temptation to compromise. There's a temptation to appropriate the world that we live in to to make ourselves more palatable to those on the outside, but the fact of the matter is that, Jesus, you've never been palatable to those on the outside. You've always been challenging. You've always been difficult to hear and to understand if you, if somebody doesn't want to. So, Jesus, I pray that you would make Stapleton a faithful church. That you would help people, help us to reach people with the pure gospel and not doctor it up and, and tell them sin is okay. But, Lord, be compassionate and understand that all of us had sin that you freed us from. And you freed us all the same by leaving it behind and coming to follow you, Jesus. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to convict people here. If there are folks who don't know you, and the Lord, those that are saved, I pray that you would bless them and encourage them and bring them forward in their walk. In Jesus' name, Amen. For our of invitations.